Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Oshart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Hi, everybody. Before we jump in, I would like to mention our disclosures, okay? Regarding financial disclosure, Sherry receives an honorarium for this podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and she is the owner of her private practice, Child Achievement Center. I also receive an honorarium for the speech link, and I'm also a presenter for SpeechTherapyPD.com and receive royalties, and I own SpeechDynamics.com. Neither of us have any non-financial disclosures. And with that said, I would like to welcome everybody to our live SpeechLink podcast brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. And you are more than welcome to participate. Just type your question or comment into the chat. And, you know, either as we go along or toward the end, we will pull up the question and I'll read it and our esteemed guest will respond. So I am Char Beauchart, your speech-language pathologist host, and my goal is to connect and link with outstanding professionals in our field. And uh, certainly we have one here today. We'll dig in and discover practical information and ideas, and specifically today on selective mutism, which is such an, an amazing topic. I'm really looking forward to your presentation, Sherry. So, and we do all this so that we can improve what we do so our clients and, and students can improve what they do. And to help us do that, today my guest is Sherry Gross, MACCC, SLP, who is a speech-language pathologist and certified elementary educator. She is a proud alumnus of Brandeis University, in 1988, she got her BA, and then at Keene University, she got her MA in 1995. She owns, directs, and started the Child Achievement Center in Manalapan, New Jersey in 1998. Now about her experience. She's been an SLP and an elementary educator in the public schools and special education schools. She was an adjunct professor and clinical supervisor for the Keene University Communication Disorders Department. In addition, she's also served as a clinical supervisor for Seton Hall University College of Health and Medical Sciences. She says she has especially enjoyed supervising graduate students in clinical placements. Also, Sherry has served as the SLP for the Selective Mutism Group and has published nationally on selective mutism. She's provided several well-received continuing education presentations on selective mutism, as well as auditory processing disorders at state confer conferences, the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, ASHA, the New Jersey Speech-Language Hearing Association, and the Central Jersey Speech and Hearing Association, as well as numerous public schools. And now she's with us. And I'm so excited to learn from you, Sherry. Thank you so much. And welcome to the speech link, Sherry. 
Thank you very much for having me. Oh, yes. I'm so glad that you're here. You are speaking with us today about selective mutism. Yes, but basically for preschoolers through elementary age and maybe a little above. And I've heard you mention that there's a few misconceptions, I think you called it, about that. So what exactly is selective mutism? So selective mutism itself is very easy to define. And then what the therapist has to keep in mind is that when you get past the basics, it can be very complicated. So selective mutism is when a child doesn't speak in many social settings, which are typically school, but is entirely comfortable speaking at home. If you have those two situations where they're talking at home as much as functionally as they can, and they're not talking at school, that in itself defines selective mutism. And as long as they're not talking in school or whatever other setting it is for a minimally for one month, past the first month of school. So sort of going from September, let's say, to the end of October. However, what can go along with selective mutism is many other disorders and difficulties which may or may not be present in any one given child, such as a whole list of mental health disorders, in addition to a whole list of speech and language disorders, all of which we can get into. Right, right. You know, I'm wondering, so the child is at home and is, and is communicating verbally. Now, if they go out and they're in the car, do you think they're communicating verbally? If they get out and they shop around the mall or the supermarket, is the child still talking or is it? Depends on the child. Okay. It's a great question. It depends. Some kids will talk to their parents wherever they are but not in front of other people. Some kids will talk to their parents in front of other people, but nobody else. And there are kids who won't even talk, you know, as soon as they get out of their comfortable setting of their mom and their dad and their sibling. And, and that's the end of it. What it is not, which has come up before, by the way, is if you, if you do ever hear, which once in a blue moon, we get a call like this, that they're not talking at home now and they used to talk. That's a whole other thing. That is not necessarily our scope of practice. That is not the definition of selective mutism. They really need to start with a mental health professional, number one, first, because that's a whole other behavioral and or psychological thing going on there. So is there maybe, are you thinking that there's abuse at home or that there's something going on? I mean, or that's beyond what we do or what we even just need to surmise. I'm not even going there. Okay. That is beyond what we do or what we need to surmise. Exactly. I have no idea. But I will tell you, since you brought up abuse, I really want to bring it up that the very, very, very large majority of kids, it is the, it is the absolute rare exception that there has been a traumatic incident that has caused this mutism because that's the first place people go that really don't know selective mutism. Oh, something must have really happened and now they're not talking. No, that is not our kids. You know, look, there's there's always the one exception to the rule where there's been complex situation where there's different parents involved and there's divorce and, you know, and, and it's not a good divorce. There are complex situations, but that is not the typical selective mutism case. So I, I want to make sure people don't think that. Good to know. Good to know. So is it hereditary or is it, you know, is that one of the reasons why? Yes, it, it is extremely common that the selective mutism, number one, always has an anxiety component all the time. That's the one piece that's always there. And you do that intake and you hear from the parents 
just about all the time that either they, one or, or sometimes even more than one parent was super quiet in school. They just didn't really want to talk for years. It runs in families. You, you hear that all the time. If you don't hear that piece of it, you do hear a whole list of other anxiety disorders in the family and or things like ADHD, you know, OCD, anxiety, all of this runs along that mental health spectrum. And that piece is nearly always in the family. All right. And I kind of started with that one because one of the kids, I have had a few children, you know, that fall into that selective mutism category. And one of the kids that I remember very, very well in elementary school she was in third grade, and I remember talking with, with the mom, and she says, oh, you know, I know she's going to be okay, because I started talking, you know, when I was around 17 or 18 years of age, and I, I didn't talk until then either. And then interestingly enough, I mean, the mom was very verbal, and she was talking, obviously, but then she said, we're just a really quiet home, because the dad doesn't talk much at home, and the mom doesn't talk much at home. So, you know, there's just, there's very little communication. Now, I don't know if the father had also been, you know, had that issue, the selective mutism. I don't know, but I wouldn't have been surprised. Right. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But that hereditary piece is so interesting, isn't it? I mean, is there research on it? Yes, there, there is definitely research out there. I haven't done it, but but it is out there. And it, it's certainly out there how anxiety disorders run in families, for sure. And selective mutism at its base is an anxiety disorder that in our terms presents as a social communication disorder, which is exactly why we can treat it, and which is why ASHA tells us we can treat it. And in the schools, why we really need to treat it, because who else is treating this? Very often, nobody. I mean, you would think the psychologist would, but... Very often, the school psychologists aren't treating, period. And and very often, they're not... Exactly. (laughs) That's Yeah, in New Jersey, they're testing. They're, They're doing a little bit of treatment, but they're primarily doing their testing. In addition to that, we really have all the tools to work with these kids, because we use these same tools every single day with all our other populations. We just have to know that we can use some of those same tools for the kids with selective mutism. Now, as we move into the analysis piece as to what we do, you know, I'd, I'd really like to emphasize, you have a private practice and you see a lot of children with selective mutism, right? Would you just sort of tell us a little bit about that? or? Yeah, so I see we see a lot of kids with selective mutism, but I want to make it clear that I don't consider myself only doing selective mutism and I never wanted to because I really enjoy being a speech therapist across the board. And quite frankly, I think if I was only looking at these communication disorders through that one narrow tunnel, I don't think I would be doing as good a job with these kids because we have to recognize everything else that goes along with it. And we have to know how to treat everything else that goes along with that. You know, having said that, I definitely have a name out there, particularly in, in New Jersey. And quite frankly, I've, I've gotten calls from, from all over, including internationally, to work with this. I mean, right now, at any given time, uh, we have uh, one, we have at least, I think at least five or six of them on the caseload that I'm, that I'm dealing with. Because people find me. And, and, and many, pretty much they're in kindergarten, all of them. Because that preschool going into kindergarten year is when... Everybody kind of says, oh, my goodness, I see the parents. I'm a private practice. So the parents are coming to me. They're finding me. They want help for their kid. And they're realizing this is, you know, that four to five year old year. we got to get talking because this is really impacting the kids. Okay. Okay. Especially if they had had one or, or, you know, both of the parents had had selective mutism 
themselves. And they probably realize how important it is. Uh, well, 100%, yes. Yeah, okay. All right, move us into analysis. What do we do? What do we say? What do we ask the parent? How do we, you know, assess the child or whatever we do, evaluate the child? What are some of the specifics that we do? Okay, so uh, so we're talking about like the initial conversation. It's the initial conversation is just finding out what the parents' concerns are, just like any other kid, and getting all that background information. Now, I have like a two-page form I use for parents to fill out for all the background information. I always tell them use the back of the page to tell me as much as you can tell me because there's no specific question about it. I said just use the whole page if you need to tell me exactly what's going on with the communication. Where are they communicating? Where are they not communicating? When did you start to notice it? Just and a lot of times they start spilling. You know, when I get like you know at least half a page, which is fine. Occasionally they're already coming to me with a diagnosis that they've gotten from a developmental pediatrician. More sometimes I have one child that not only got has currently that not only has the selective mutism diagnosis but also has at least two or three other psychological diagnoses: generalized anxiety, maybe OCD. Like there's she's got a little list, and she's already on medication, so she's on medication for all that, which you know is, is certainly helpful. And sometimes they're coming to me just saying they're not talking in school, and somebody mentioned selective mutism, and and either they mentioned you or we found you. And so then, you know, we're getting the background information. And again, once we've established they're not talking in school, that's point A. <laughs> that's like after diagnosis. And then the second diagnosis is we, is we you know, talk, talk to the parents to find out are there any other odd behaviors um, or any other concerns whatsoever. So what would be odd? I mean, you're talking what, maybe about a four or five, maybe six-year-old child? What, Like what? Yeah. So so do they have any other phobias okay. about anything else? Are they tantruming constantly in the house? Are they able to minimally pretend play with their siblings? So because you want to start to rule out, you know, make sure we're not dealing with the autism spectrum, which once in a while you are. You know, we, we have to kind of peel back the layers on these kids. You have to think of them as an onion and you have to like start peeling it back and putting the pieces of the onion in the normal pile. And that's all good. So I'm not concerned about it versus things that you might be concerned about. You have to start to, to, to find what's good and what's a little odd. And then, you know, we attempt to see, we go in with a very open mind the first time we see these kids, we, just like an open book, because some of them occasionally will do absolutely like, absolutely nothing in therapy. I mean, the, you know, one of the more extreme cases was, you know, really just like screamed for at six weeks. That's unusual. But she also came around and we got her, you know, after a while, we got her treated. You know, wouldn't separate, you know, had to sit on dad's lap or else it was just a screaming session. Many other times we can get them because we've got a very fun play area and we don't look like a school. You know, on purpose. we look like an office, but we look like a very friendly office with tons of games and toys. So right in the waiting room. I also, when they come into the waiting room, I purposely have them wait longer than the rest of the kids. Just like, like, and I let the parents know we're not rushing. I book out minimally two hours for these appointments, sometimes longer, because they have to warm up and they have to want to be part of all this. So, you know, we have some toys in the waiting room all the time. We just kind of let them find their way and get comfort. On top of that, sometimes we hear them talking to the parent in the waiting room. That just happened last week, a few days ago. I forget when it was. Monday? Yeah, sometimes they're talking sentences to the parent in the waiting room after five minutes. So we're just standing outside the door, my grad student and I, and she's taking all the notes for me. You know, because this way we're getting a language sample 
and we're starting to figure out whether we have to worry about their language or not. We want them to be comfortable in the environment and we kind of drag it out for that reason. And we tell the parents, you know, just I'll fill all these forms out and take your time <laughs> on purpose. Then we start to think about getting them into the room and we're seeing if we can get them to play, seeing if we, they're going to play on their own, seeing if they're going to play with us. I usually entice them, especially girls, and so many of these kids are girls, way more than boys. I promise you it's probably the one disorder that you're going to have a much higher percentage of girls affected than you have boys. Yeah, it's very unusual. So I know that you've mentioned that there are certain commonalities between individuals with selective mutism, and that's one of them, So that there are a lot of girls. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the percentage is much higher with girls. Okay. Which is, again, for what we do is very unusual. Okay. The percentage is, you know, easily three quarters with girls, at least that I see, if not, if not 80%. Well, you would know. You see, you see a lot yeah, of kids. I would, I, I would be willing to say a, a solid 80%. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So they're out in the waiting room. You give them two hours to acclimate. And well, we give them like 15 minutes in the waiting room and then we get them into ah. one of the rooms and we start ah, to entice them. I see. Okay. We start to entice, oh, you know, I went to, so, you know, let's, you know, we have so many toys here and we either see if we talk right to the child, presuming we're going to get an answer to, you know, and it's usually girls. So do, are we going to do painting or making bracelets or do we like games? Do we like puzzles? You know, a lot of them like to paint. We start with that a lot. Play-Doh, things that are hands-on, always hands-on. Because we're not going to get them to talk right away. We always got And once in a while we do, but we're not presuming that. So, you know, sometimes we start getting nods. And sometimes we start getting them to agree to come with us. Sometimes the parent winds up telling us what they usually like at home. Once in a blue moon, the parent, well, I would say maybe half the time the parent will come with, in with them for the first session. And then after that first session, you know, the initial goal is to, to separate. But that's okay. We'd rather have the kid comfortable and happy and working with us. And we start to see, will they interact? You know, will they do eye contact? We're, you know, we're ruling out, we're ruling out autism, to be quite frank. We're ruling, we're seeing if they can follow directions. We're seeing if they can make choices. We're seeing if they're going to point to, you know, to what they want, because we never just give it to them. We see if they're going to nod to what they want. We see if they're going to, who knows, maybe they're going to tell us what they want. But a lot of times with kids like four and older, we'll write the words for the different choices on a piece of paper. And we tell them, you know, is it blue or yellow? And, you know, you have to pick. Is it, you know, are you going to want blue or are you going to want yellow? And we don't want them just to point. At that point, we want them to pick up the pen and circle the one they want. Because now we're getting them to communicate through written communication. An older child, we're going to have them write the words right away. If we hear that they read and write, they're not getting through the first session without, without reading and writing. Because that's the communication level that we know they can do. So we're always really looking to start at their, figure out their highest communication level, work up from there. And... A lot of times we can get the receptive testing done right in the first session. Once in a while, we can get the expressive testing done right in the first session. Again, because we booked out this two hours. I mean, honestly, I remember the case I was bringing up before. We started a child last week with my graduate student and I, and God bless her, she's starting to join a very good club. She's really learning how to do this. And we were able to get the testing done. We were able to get her to do the expressive one word on the first day towards the end. I mean, we weren't doing the told yet, but we were getting the expressive one word done. Wow. And this was a child that was in school and was not communicating verbally? Had not communicated verbally at all. Started kindergarten this year, but had been in preschool. And the mom had taken her to an LCSW who specialized in this for a few months. And I was like, you know, how'd it go? And she's like, 
you know, it went well, you know, but she didn't get her talking yet. Okay. Well, we got her talking and I'm not kidding. Day one. And I just had her day, right. So we had her day two yesterday. And now we've got her talking with another child with selective mutism. We have the two of them talking to, you know, quietly to each other within the context of structured games. So they're now a group and neither one of them is going to come individually anymore. Ooh, that's great. That's smart. See, and, and you mentioned a word that I keep thinking about on the back of my head, comfortable. You want the child to be comfortable. Yeah, you got to get them comfortable. And then we work through a communication confidence approach. We're enabling them to be confident in their all types of communication. We're not focused on verbalization. We're focused on communication. And we work our way all the way up to the top of the pyramid where the verbal, where the, not only the verbalization, but the conversational verbalization is. There's many, many steps before that. Okay. Okay. I love this. Oh my gosh. I mean, you have, you have sliced this very thinly and this is exactly what we need. This makes total sense. Okay. Is there anything else within this evaluation slash analysis piece before we move on to the coexisting conditions? Anything that you want to say before we move on? Just be super open-minded. Don't go in there deciding you're going to do X, Y, and Z because that might not be the child that you see. I teach my students that, you know, obviously what we do is a science. You know, being a speech therapist, you have to have a lot of the science and you have to have evidence-based practice and all that. But this piece of it, there is absolutely an art to it. And you, and you have to be willing to not have any kind of plan day one. After that, you make a plan. But you have to go in with a very open mind, very relaxed. Let's see where we are and let's see where we need to go. And let's see what, what skills we have and what skills we don't have. Okay. So you need to know, the person going in there needs to know what the options are. Like, where do you go? You, you're watching the child and what they're doing and not doing and the next small step that you must take to try and move them along. Exactly. So, right. And we're not just waiting for them and playing. We're, we're, we have all kinds of goals to move them along. But you brought up a very good point. I almost forgot. One of the other ways that we see what the baseline is, it's so easy these days, we have the parents show us a video of them chatting at home in their most comfortable environment. And then sometimes, right, this, like this child that I saw yesterday that's in the group with the, with the brand new child, you know, day one, the mom showed me the video and she was cooking, like she was pretending that she was cooking something. I think that maybe they were making something at the same time. And she was doing the presentation like you would see on TV where the chef teaches you how to cook. And she was using very, very good vocabulary. And none of it was quirky. She was just bright. Many of them are very bright. Interesting. Now, are you watching this video yes. with the child there? This time I did. Yes. And I thought, oh, you're such a brave talker. Brave is the big word. Brave. You are so brave. Ah. You, were, did, you did such a... I loved watching that. I can't wait to make it. You're a very brave talker. A brave talker. Ooh, I like that. That makes sense. That makes sense. I like that. Oh my gosh. This is just fascinating. You're amazing. Okay. All right. So the analysis piece, we kind of have a sense of that. I guess my last question here within that category is, do you have any of this written down? Can we access your brain somewhere? I do. I could. I could. I could uh, send it. I could send that. I have a, a whole document of techniques that we use that I've given to other speech therapists, and that's usually what I give out in my workshops. Okay. Of uh, you know te techniques, and then uh, I have a document of all the slides when I've done the workshops. Okay. 
Okay. So we need to get your, your email address. Yeah. Okay. And it's such an old document. I probably have to, I probably have to upload it and scan it as a PDF. That's how old it is. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, whatever. We'll take whatever you've got, girl. Okay. So what is your email address? We might as well do it right now, just in case I forget. All right. So let's go with child achievement center, all one word, 82 at Gmail. That's kind of the most direct one. Okay. Child Achievement Center at 82. Child Achievement Center 82. Okay. At Gmail. At Gmail. Okay. All right. They could also send to my office, Child Achievement Center at Gmail. Either way, I will get it. Okay. Good, good. Woo. Excellent. Okay. So coexisting conditions. And you alluded to that a little bit with the language or the other issues, but what, what do we look for there and what are some of the options? of coexisting conditions. Some of the options, it's, you know, you run, you run the gamut there. So, you know, on the mild end, you might get some articulation disorders and you would see that in the video right away. And if they're not gonna do the Goldman Fristo, which they're probably not for many weeks, you know, but, they're, but they've got that RSNL, um, even though it's age appropriate, it's there. Uh, so in fact, I had a conference with a, with a speech therapist very recently. I'm like, look, just put him in under articulation. He has an articulation disorder. Get him on your caseload and, you know, treat him, treat him for everything. But that's a good way to get him on your caseload because it's because it is there. Definitely. You can have kids that have expressive language disorders. You can have, you know, expressive and receptive. I, I've had kids that day one, when we did get them talking after all, you know, a very long session, turns out that there was some Aspergery type and also full blown autism there. Without a doubt, because when they all of a sudden they do start talking and the topic of the day is raw meat for a five year old child and all the different types of raw meat. And it's in a very and it's in a very robotic type of tone. And, right. And and uh, it's then you're like, OK, I think we're working with something else here, mom. Exactly. And did mom I mean, in this particular case, did mom recognize that as being an issue? Not initially until we brought it up, but it was diagnosed later. I mean, once we saw it, it was a rocket scientist. However, she never said anything in school. She sat and behaved. She wasn't a standout, you know, with negative behaviors. She just didn't say anything. Yes. Okay. So yeah, other other coexisting things, autism, obviously. Um, what else have we got here that we should look for? Uh, just, I've worked with kids that, you know, came to me, uh, weren't able. Yeah, dyslexia. I've seen that a few times, actually. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's again that it's one causes the other. Although when you don't talk in school for years on end, and then it, it turns out that you really are dyslexic and you have a second language on top of all that, right? So I there was a child in a in a public school that I went to for years. They had me come into the public school to work with the child on the selective mutism, but we got busy with that reading once we figured that out because that kid you know was talking to me, but it was clear as daylight she couldn't read anything. Um, right. So she wound up in an LLT class later, and not only for the selective mutism piece, but so she could, you know, learn to read. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So well, sometimes when your kids aren't reading, there, there might be more of a reason there. Yeah. Sometimes they can't. Sure. There you go. It just sounds like all, you know, the gamut that we kind of see in many other kids. And so we, we just want to know that, hey, it may not just, just be selective mutism. Right. And on top of that, it's not they don't want to. It's not they don't want to. It's that 
It's that they're so anxious they can't. They're not trying to control you. They're not trying to control the teacher. They've learned to control their own, their own internal anxiety by not speaking. They've learned it works for them to control their own internal, internal tension. Own internal tension. Right. So they're not talking and it kind of worked for day one. They didn't get, you know, they didn't, they weren't forced to do anything worse and it worked on day two. So now they're still not talking. And so does that become sort of a social communication disorder? I mean, is that... Sorry. I think it's a social communication disorder from day okay. one. Okay, and that you makes know, sense. From the get-go. I think it's a social pragmatic... I think I think the way to code selective mutism in, voted in speech terms is a social pragmatic communication disorder. Yeah, okay. That makes all kinds of sense. Wow. Okay. Oh, man. All right, girl. All right. <laughs> this is just fascinating. Just fascinating. So... Do you ever have kids at school, like a child that has selective mutism, um, you know, maybe choose one other child and just kind of hang out with that child and communicates with that child? I mean, do they ever do that or? So we, right, we've worked. Yes. And I want to, yes, I want to talk about that and something else also. So, yeah, so we've worked with a child that I can recall right off the bat. Um, once we eventually got him talking, he was eventually talking to this one other child in school. But the problem was that other child who was typical was so happy, like was basically had, had told our select me child that, that he should only talk to him. So in other words, it, it, it became a double-edged sword. It's good that they're talking, but this other child wanted no part of our kid uh, talking to anybody else in the room. Right. In other words, like, right. So, so he was like, okay, he's, he's going to talk to me. I'm special, but you're not going to talk to anybody else. That's essentially what it came down to little kids, not in a, in a nasty, obnoxious way, but he wanted to be the special friend. Now that he was a special friend, he wasn't going to let any other special friends in, which does not help my child. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So it's, you know, you want you want to move them to the full gamut as quickly as you okay. can. So you don't necessarily just want them whispering to that one other oh, kid. Exactly. Okay. And so do you pull the other child aside and, or together and talk about that? I mean, how do you work with I that? Mean, I mean, I wasn't in that school. Okay. I was the outside therapist for okay. that child. Um, Cause that does sound like something no, that needs so, to be addressed. I mean. Right. So, right. That definitely should be addressed, but, but I think the more effective way to, cause you can't be there all the time. You're not going to be there at lunch. You're not going to be there at recess. You, you're not going to reason with a six-year-old kid necessarily. You you just have to address it with your child and make sure that that child is, that you're playing in all the other children in the class for him to communicate with. I wouldn't worry too much about the one child. I would worry about your kid. I think you have, you know, it's much more effective that way. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, good. But I would, what, I, what I would do, and I do in classrooms all the time, because um, I do go to a bunch of private schools where I have some of these kids is I will, I will come, you know, the kids will run up to me. They're little kids. Oh, she doesn't talk, you know, cause they're all excited to see me and, oh, but he doesn't talk. And I'll just look right at the entire class, right? This child and everybody. So everybody can hear me. You, did you know that Matthew is, is super great at talking? Of course, Matthew talks. Matthew has, is a really, really good talker. And as soon as Matthew's ready, he's going to talk here at school also. So I set up that positive expectation for everyone across the board. And I always tell the teacher to do that as well. They must set up the positive expectation that as soon as you're ready, 
we're all, you're, you're a very brave talker and you're going to be talking here as well. And you say it to everybody, so it's no big surprise when it happens. Because it is a very common thing. If the kid finally talks, everybody, and sometimes this includes the teacher, goes, they're talking. <laughs> and that kid never talks again. Yeah. I, I mean, I could see that happening. I mean, that's like super focusing on that child. And that's not necessarily what they need or want or whatever. So right. it, all, it all has to be no big deal. And of course, they're going to talk. Okay. All right. No big deal. And of course, they're going to talk. So in the classroom, and let's say that, you know, Mary has is the child that has the selective mutism and everybody has to get up and do a show and tell or talk about the book that they read or get up and read their paper or whatever they need to do. How do you get around that? Or what do you what do you say? So, so you never want to let this kid out of out of an activity because that reinforces their mutism. But what you do want to do is enable them to 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 do the task in the best way that they're able to do at that at that moment in time. So if that's standing up and pointing to all the words that they're reading on this poem, that's fine. If the child is comfortable recording it at home, which I wouldn't necessarily go there unless it's an older child and they actually wanted to participate that way, that's an idea. But the point is you never let them out of it. You include them as much as possible and you make and, and you demonstrate that communication. If that child wants to write out the words, if that's how old they are, I mean, that's what I was making my, my seventh grader where I'd had since the time she was in second grade, the one that I went into the, the public school for, we would have her write and write and write and write. She had two choices. She could say it or she could write it because minimally they're practicing their writing. And, and then sometimes they just get tired of writing. They just eventually just start talking. You know, they see that there's a much easier way out of this, but you don't let them get away with it. You know, or if you know what the child has to say, if the child has to say, you know, the month is February because they're in kindergarten and whatever, that's their thing to do on circle day. So they have, they can trace the word February, but they have to do something and they have to do it standing in the same spot that all the other kids would do it. And you can do it hand over hand as you need to. Okay. All right. Now, I think that I did have a child, a, a child that had selective mutism that was sort of, how do I say, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but I think she was milking it. Does that ever happen where the child is, you know, gets the, the special attention and, and whatever, and they really like it? And I mean, does that ever, I mean, that I'm pretty sure that happened one time on a kid that I had, but maybe that isn't selective mutism. Yeah, I haven't personally seen that in a child with selective mutism, and I would wonder uh, what else is going on there. Okay, it may have been something else. Like, is there, yeah, because they wouldn't be seeking out attention. Our kids with selective mutism do not seek attention. All right, good to know, good to know. Okay, great. So get us into therapy, into structure our, our treatment for us, give us some goals, give us some examples. Woo, yeah, treatment. Okay, uh, one, one more thing. Also, make sure your kids have had a hearing test. Just like I had one of those that, you know, they never talked in school. And finally, six weeks later, when the mother finally got the hearing test, the kid wound up with hearing aids. It was that bad. So you want you, you never know what you're working with until you've ruled out all the other good stuff. You know, making sure that they don't have the other things that we're working with. Um, all right. So anyway, in terms of therapy, uh, hands on. I, we, we do all hands on um, and play based. So so if that kid's into puzzles, we're doing a lot of puzzles. And then we're, you know, talking about 
we're having them start out by pointing to the different things, following directions. Um, eventually, we're naming what we like in the puzzle. We're eventually we're naming what's silly in the puzzle. And if they're not up to naming it, they're writing on a piece of paper. But we're always upping those communication tasks as we go. Um, if they like games, uh, we always start with a game like Connect Four, where there's no where there's no talking about, and it's just turn taking. And then we move to games where we incorporate the need to do uh, one word, but we're also very often incorporating blowing toys like whistles. You know, it's a little hard with COVID because now we have to do that a little less, but we just started again and the parents are good with that. They're like tired of this already. Whistles and bubbles, because now you're using your oral musculature to, to you're using it where you're so brave, you have such a brave mouth and you have all that brave air that's coming out. Wow, you made such a loud noise. That was so loud, that was so brave. In the beginning, we're very generous with prizes, but we do not work with bribes. It's never, uh, if you do X, then you get Y, because that puts pressure on the child. And the kids almost always want, almost always want the prize. And, and they're, just, they're just not gonna perform that way. Uh, but whatever they do, we catch them doing, oh my goodness, you were so brave, you need to take a prize out of the prize box. The first two days they walk out with tons of prizes. After that, it becomes one to two. We we if let's say they have to tell us a word in the game like you know we're playing one of the standard speech games and let's say we're playing a, cat a categorizing game where they're matching everything to the categories and they're not ready to say it yeah that's where they would we say oh you can you can use your whistle to say the word um and eventually move them from blowing the whistle to saying the word to kind of having it up here and they can and whispering into the whistle and we're silly about it um we do a lot of silly things we do uh Unvoiced consonants, because unvoiced consonants and are essentially just noises. We make mouth noises with the kids. We have a whiteboard. We get them up on the whiteboard. We usually spell out their name. We we like look for which sounds are quiet. Oh, this one is so easy. So there was a child the other day that I think her name started with a K. And instead of using all the different letters, I just spelled them all with K. So now she's laughing because that's not how to spell her name. And of course, I have the right number of Ks there. And then. And then this is how we how we would, you know, sound that idiom. She thought that was very funny and we got rolling right away because we're not using our voice. Some consonants are quiet and some consonants are noisy. Eventually we get into the noisy sounds, eventually we get into the vowel sounds. We got we just you just gotta move them step by step. And you have to be confident in your ability to do this. And you have to have a ton of patience, <laughs> especially with the evals. You must go in with patience because you're going to need it with these kids. They are not going to go, you know, we want our kids to move on, you know, therapist directing tasks the way we tell them, um, which is what we do for all of the other kids. These kids, it doesn't work like that until much later. So you, you have to go in with a lot of patience. Yes. Okay. So keep going. Tell me, tell me more about therapy. Keep it going. Give, give me some examples of some of the kids that you've worked with. So, yeah. So we do, again, a lot of the, the voice consonants. Then we sometimes we move to single words. Um, we move to syllables with have, you know, the voice, with voiceless consonants with the vowel sounds. Um, we move them into groups as soon as we do get them talking because groups more closely resemble school um, and friendships. Um, so like we'll move them into a group of two. And then if we can get, you know, as long as we have good peers, we only do it with peers that are well-matched and then uh, we'll, you know, move them into a group of four or five or even six. We've had groups of six kids like this where, because now you have a teacher and you have 
the children. And that's what school looks like. You know, a group of kids doing therapist-directed activities and using their speech around therapist-directed activities. What else can I tell you? Uh, it depends on what the child likes. We, we, you know, we're doing, sometimes we're doing language therapy activities incorporated with dyslexia. Sometimes a lot of following direction activities and then they have to talk at the same time. I even, I've done it through teletherapy now, which I never wanted to do. But we kind of got, we all got thrown into it and I was still getting phone calls. And I, I, I the first kid and the first, the second kid after that, I said, look, I'll be happy and try and help you, but I've, I have no idea if this is going to work because I've never done it this way. But they were just as happy to try because they had to do something and I was just happy to try. They were probably happier than I was, but it worked. We used all the, uh, you know, it, it, it worked. We, we we used, you know, the boot cards and the child was in their own environment. So in that respect, it was a, it was a bit easier. Uh, they, I, I'm thinking one of the kids that I, the first one that I did it with probably talked within first day or two in her own environment on the screen. Cause again, she wasn't in the office after, after two or three months, we got, we were able to get her into the office. I think she might've been one of the first kids we brought back in and she transitioned, I think within a day to talking back in the office. So, I mean, it is a strategy that's worth trying now. I had a school age child that was really kind of ready to make progress and needed somebody to work with her, get her to do it. And once I got her talking in the office, we, we, at that point, pulled her school teacher onto my teletherapy site while she was in the office. So now this, this child was doing the same activities for the teacher and, and old enough to know, you know, that, that she was actually there and she was talking in front of her teacher. Um, And that was, you know, something new that we've now thrown into the mix because now we know how to use this technology more than sometimes more than we ever wanted to. Uh, yeah. So that was actually a great, a great strategy for doing so. There you go. Yeah. That makes sense. Makes sense. You know, I was wondering as you were talking and you were, you know, talking about the unvoiced, you know, the voiceless consonants and so on, and, and then just incrementally adding and then syllables and words and so on. Are you talking over a matter of weeks, you know, days, weeks, months, or does it just depend on the child? Sometimes it's just a couple of therapy sessions. Sometimes it's, you know, two months. Lately, it hasn't been much longer than that. Two months. Yeah, like weekly sessions. Occasionally twice a week. One time per week. Yeah, and sometimes occasionally twice a week, depending on what season and, you know, if what the parent can do it, but... Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a matter of a day or two. You are, you're good. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's unusual. Usually, more often, we're talking six to eight weeks. That's still good. So they come to see you one time per week, or you're on, online one time per week? And, and usually, usually one time a week in the office, most often. In the office, okay. And are you talking with the parent or the child about something to do the other six days? Or yeah, so we give them activities to do at home. We want them to, first of all, find all the brave things their child is doing. We make a brave list with the children and we hang it up on the wall, um, depending on the age, like for all the brave things that they've done. And we, and we tell the parent, we give them a copy. We want them to hang it up at home and go over the list with them, how brave their child is. We have, once they're able to verbalize, we have them like go to the ice cream store and depending on what they're up to, either they're, either they're saying the flavor to the mom, but 
the other people are around or actually ordering ice cream, ordering McDonald's. We're like, hey, you can go to the drive-thru because they're not even right there. You're just talking. You know, it's like, but that's like a couple steps, you know, a couple steps along. Um, but we're we're constantly having the parents, you know, purposely talk with them outside of outside of the home and and inspecting the child to talk back. So whatever they haven't done, we're moving having them go to the next step. Um, throughout the store, I mean, nobody really does too much of this anymore because of COVID, at least around here. But if they're at the store, you know, you know, making sure that the child's also paying, having the child give over a debit card, you know, get, things like that. As much interaction and communication as possible. Yes. So the the brave list, do they come in with things to add to the brave list or is this something that they take with them or how does this become, how does, yes, how does it? Yes, sometimes they absolutely do. Yeah, sometimes they, well, we, you know, a list that I might generate might be that you looked at Sherry, you played the game, you know, you played whatever, the pirate game with Sherry, you were blowing in the, you know, and then number three would be, you were blowing in the whistles. You're so brave. And number four is that you meet the peace out with your bubbles, like, you know, like that. And then, yeah, number five is, uh, you know, if they're eventually whispering, you were able to whisper at Shari. You were able to whisper when Miss Rachel walked into the room. You were talking to mom in the waiting room. You were so brave talking all those sentences in, my, in the waiting room. That was so awesome. You even got a prize for that. Um, we just recognize every little thing that they're doing because every little thing is such a big step for them. And then at home, you know, we, we do get reports that they talked that that it was a big deal, that they went out to dinner and the waitress, you know, looked at them and said, you know, asked them, you know, whatever, do you want fries? And if the kid nodded no, yes, and had never done something like that before and all of a sudden did it and without thinking about it, that's a big deal because that's that's a step in the right direction. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. All right. This is good. This is really good. Excellent. Anything else, you know, that comes to mind about therapy that you'd like to share? About therapy that I'd like to share. Um, just making sure that people know that they, they actually are equipped to do this. You have all the tools to do this. You have to look at it as a social communication difficulty and you have to move them step by step. That's like the most, if I had to pick one thing, that's the most important thing. It's not out of our scope of practice whatsoever. You have the tools to do this. And who else in the school is going to do it? It's like Ghostbusters, right? You know, who are you going to call? You're going to call the speech therapist. When the speech, when the kid's not talking, that's what you're going to call. There you go. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Makes sense. So do kids ever grow out of this? I mean, or do they ever figure it out on their own or, you know? Rarely. Do you really want them to grow out of it at 16, 17 years old? Because they've missed all that academic development and they've missed all the socialization development. And then they put themselves more at risk for more um, mental health disorders like, you know, depression. And, you know, what teenager wants to have no friends? And if you have to get the parent on board in a school setting and the parents like, no, they talk perfectly fine. That's usually the line that gets them. You know, they're not talking to any other children in school. They're not playing with any other children in school. That's why we know we need to work on this because that's a parent who doesn't really get it gets that pretty quick. Like they don't like the coming, essentially saying they don't have any friends that we can see and they aren't developing any social relationships that gets the parents. Now, what about with their brothers and sisters if they have siblings and they're interacting with them? 
So typically you would want them talk, right. They, they should be talking with, with their siblings for that to be part of, for that to fall under selective mutism. That they're talking with their comfortable, their most familiar people in their comfortable environment, which sometimes includes grandparents and sometimes doesn't. And sometimes includes aunts and uncles and sometimes doesn't. Oh, really? And what about their pets? I know their pets. I mean, I would imagine their pets. No, they're, yeah, pets, I guess. You know what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. Do you ever, you know, have them, you know, bring in their puppy dog or whatever? And, you know, I haven't. It's not a bad idea. I used to have, I used to bring my dog to the office for years and the kids really liked it, but she got really old. So she didn't come after a while. Yeah. But I used to have a teeny little dog I used to bring in and that used to go really well. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. I bet your dog was a hit. And my dog was a hit. My dog would run away from the two year old. She knew enough to do that because the two year olds don't really get it. But she would hang around for everybody else. (laughs) Smart dog. Yes. You know, they they were they had to be above a certain height. Yeah. Okay. there you go. There you go. I love it. I love it. Okay. All right. So do you have a favorite case? I mean, obviously, you know, we're not going to do names and I don't want to get into confidentiality and all of that. But do you have a case that just comes to mind that you'd like to share with us? I mean, I have so many, but I mean, I, the easiest ones are the ones I'm working with now. So we have a really interesting one now that just started with me a few weeks ago, went to a private kindergarten here. Now here in New Jersey, public school is very popular. I know in other parts of the country, sometimes you have less kids in public school and parents want to do private schools and whatnot. But this particular parent is looking for a new house and was living in a town where a relative had a house kind of temporarily until they get all settled because you know how the real estate market is these days. So she didn't particularly want to send of her own volition, her child to school in that particular town. So she would sent her to a private kindergarten and the director there essentially said, we don't know how to work with this. Uh, she, she, she shouldn't be here when she doesn't belong here. The mother took it as they didn't want to do it, which they might not have wanted to do it, but there's also a second language there. So I don't know how the interpretation went, but she pulled her out of that school. So now she wasn't in school at all. She came to me around uh, two weeks ago. And the first thing we wanted her to do was to get into school, but she was not willing to put her into the public school where she was living. She said, no, we're looking here. We're hoping we're going to be there in a few months, blah, blah, blah. And we, you know, I said, okay. I said, I work with a couple of schools that I actually go to. So she wound up enrolling her one a little farther from where she's living now. But right near me, they're, we're there already twice a week with some kids selecting mutism, just speech and language in general. So she wound up putting her in that school. But the big thing with her is that what we figured out probably within one, the first session, I think, because the mom was in the room, we were doing some receptive testing. And what we noticed is that Mom would talk to her in the native in the in the primary language that's in the home. She was queuing in a heck of a lot faster than when either the mother or us were saying whatever it was we were talking about in English. So it wasn't just us because she would say the exact same thing. Her English was very good, but she wanted the child to learn the other language, which is so typical. And because of COVID, she didn't send her to school last year, which is not terribly unusual. Around, at least around here, like she would avoid, like I, I have a lot of parents that kept them out of the preschoolers out of school last year because it was just too much for everybody. So she didn't get, she said, I would have sent her. She's very smart. I would have sent her, but I didn't send her last year. And what I was seeing was that she was basically queuing in completely in the other language, but not in English. So 
I said, the first thing we got to do is we got to get her into school so that she learns English because this is, she most definitely has selective mutism. <laughs> it's very obvious, but, but she's definitely also a kid that has an ESL issue. So now she's in school. I saw her in school today. I've gone over like everything with the teacher for the first, you know, she's not a behavior problem at all. As long as she knows what to do, she's doing it. Or if she sees the other kids doing it, she'll do it. Now she's not always getting the answers right. But those tend to be like vocabulary related issues. All right. But she's trying her best and learning as she goes. And then, you know, I, I explained to the teacher how the first month, the only goal is just really just get her comfortable and get her more comfortable with the English. And, but make sure she's next to you because she had her like in a back seat with a really friendly kid. I'm like, yeah, just make sure she's right up front with you. And when you do circle time, make sure she's right next to you because, you know, you really have to show her everything. And I brought her in today and we did. I believe we did uh, Here Builder on my computer, um, which you definitely enjoy. Right. It's because she's getting so much vocabulary from that. And we also read a Raz Kids book at a very early level. So, again, to learn to learn the English, we just did like a level double A, which is just two. It just has not even full sentences on the page um, to get her used to some of the vocabulary. I let her pick the book she wanted. And then we did answering the questions which she was able to touch and she completely cooperated with. I sometimes I didn't go back and show her, but she was happy to answer those questions. I guess we must have done level A because there were questions involved. So, you know, we worked on her language, we worked on her cooperation, the language comprehension, you know, the comfort level. This one's going to not, not going to be a six week case. It's, it's going to be, a, you know, ask me in December how it's going. That'll be, the goal is to get her going hopefully by December. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and we'll see when, you know, if mom finds a house and then we have right. that well, adjustment way, with the new school. Right. But well, I, she's committed to keeping her in the school for the year. Cause, oh, perfect. They're looking not perfect. far. Right. They're not, they're looking not far from where the school is located. Okay. All so right. she's well, going to be in kindergarten all year. Excellent. Okay. Right. That's good. That's good. And then how do you deal with that English as a second language piece, the ELL? You know what? I don't get it too much, but I get it once in a while. I had that with the other kid uh, years ago that was dyslexic and an English language learner um, and selectively mute. And I promise you she was dyslexic and she was, you know, language disordered on top of her. We did a very comprehensive evaluation um, after she was completely talking to me. And I promise you she was dyslexic and language disordered and they had another language in the house. Wow. Wow. Well, this is just, this is absolutely amazing. Just amazing. You know, I, you know, we need a little laughter here in our life. <laughs> Do you have an especially humorous experience that maybe has happened along the way, you know, in your therapy life? Yeah, nothing to do with selective mutism, no. but you would still like to hear it, I presume? Anything? Just, yeah, so yeah. I would say around uh, not quite a year ago, we, we got a new kid that I'm still working with, and very, very, very spectrum And he had to go to the bathroom. He's like, I, you know... I have to go to the bathroom. Okay, go to the bathroom. So I'm waiting, and it's been now it's like four minutes. And you know, you really don't want to leave an autistic kid in the bathroom all that long when the especially the mother had like walked out the door apparently. So, you know, I knock on the door to find out, you know, are you know, are you coming out? No. Okay, so now this is the only door in the office that locks, and we purposely designed it so that it has a you know, because you have to lock a bathroom door. But it has a, a very easy to open little latch. So I went to get a coin. I put it in. I did my thing. I said, because yeah, you want to see what's going on. You know, this is an issue. 
So I open the door and he's sitting there completely naked. And I don't even see the clothes anymore. Completely? Top to bottom? Completely. Top to bottom. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I don't even see his clothes. And I'm like, finally, I found him like behind the door that I had just oh. opened. But, he's just so, sitting there. Uh-huh, and I have two other therapists in the office who now, you know, you have to put your clothes on. <laughs> And, and so now the one comes to see what's going on. <laughs> so she's like, now she's hysterical. And then the other one comes. She's like, you asked him. You know, like, I hope the mom like, didn't walk in on like, this. Like, <laughs> no, well, I called the mother right away because I wasn't touching yeah, I the know, kid yeah. COVID. And the fact that he has no clothes on. So I, I got my cell phone and I called the mother. I said, listen, you know, he, he doesn't have any clothes on. She's like. Oh, oh, my God, I should have warned you. This is something he does. <laughs> and then she, I'm like, okay, well, can you come help us? I'm all the way down the, down the road. Like, and she was all the way down the road. <laughs> Somehow, I talked him back into his clothes. <laughs> we proceeded. So that, if you want a funny story, yeah. do it. No. It wasn't funny to me at the time, but yeah, it was very I've funny never to my had other therapist. Never. I mean, I've had kids like up check on me and, you know, do some strange things, but I've never had a kid. <laughs> so I like talk him back into his clothes. That was a lot oh, of fun. Oh, gosh. Oh, jeez. The stuff that, that happens. And he wasn't so young. He was, you know, a solid school age. Okay. He was not like a four, three-year-old or yeah, four-year-old. Like early elementary type. Yeah, he was like middle yeah. elementary. A uh, middle elementary. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard it all. <laughs> Oh, my. Oh, thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all your helpful, I mean, extreme, just like insightful, you know, words of wisdom and information for us to help us with what selective mutism is, the analysis, the therapy. It's exactly what we need. Exactly. And thank you, too, for your your email. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you. It's been great. It's been great. So, And also, I want to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast, where you only learn practical information, okay, as well as CEUs. And I greatly appreciate your positive comments and your reviews and all of your terrific support. And as you may know, the SpeechLink meets every other Thursday at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And the next time that we meet is October 21st, same time. And Dr. Sandra Combs will share her information on the competent clinician, evidence-based practice, and data collection. So you want to tune in for that one. As you know, when we wrap up, just log into the Speech Therapy PD, your SpeechTherapyPD.com account, take the quiz, do the evaluation, and print out your certificate. And in a few days, also, the audio version of this episode will be available for free on all of the popular podcasts like Apple Podcasts and TuneIn and Podbean and all of those. So you can listen to it again and tell your friends. Do know you are greatly appreciated. And thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids. We'll see you next time. Thank you for letting me help. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit sharposhart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.